section twenty five of a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one by george lilly craik chapter four part one third english mixed or compound english geoffrey chaucer part one the vision of piers ploughman is our earliest poetical work of any considerable extent that may still be read with pleasure but not much of its attraction lies in its poetry it interests us chiefly as rather a lively picture which however would have been nearly as effective in prose of much in the manners and general social condition of the time and of the new spirit of opposition to old things which was then astir partly too by the language and style and as a monument of a peculiar species of versification langland or whoever was the author probably contributed by this great work to the advancement of his native tongue to a larger extent than he has had credit for the grammatical forms of his english will be found to be very nearly if not exactly the same with those of chaucer's his vocabulary if more sparingly admitting the non-teutonic element still does not abjure the principle of the same composite constitution nor is his style much inferior in mere regularity and clearness so long a work it was not likely to have been undertaken except by one who felt himself to be in full possession of the language as it existed the writer was no doubt prompted to engage in such a task in great part by his gift of ready expression and he could not fail to gain additional fluency and skill in the course of the composition especially with a construction of verse demanding so incessant an attention to words and syllables the popularity of the poem too would diffuse and establish whatever improvements in the language it may have introduced or exemplified in addition to the ability displayed in it and the popular spirit of the day with which it was animated its position in the national literature naturally and deservedly gave to the vision of piers ploughman an extraordinary influence for it has the distinction so far as is either known or probable of being the earliest original work of any magnitude in the present form of the language robert of gloucester and robert de brune langland's predecessors were both it may be remembered only translators or paraphrasts if langland however is our earliest original writer chaucer is still our first great poet and the true father of our literature properly so called compared with his productions all that precedes is barbarism but what is much more remarkable is that very little of what has followed in the space of nearly five centuries that has elapsed since he lived and wrote is worthy of being compared with what he has left us he is in our english poetry almost what homer is in that of greece and dante in that of italy at least in his own sphere still the greatest light although therefore according to the scheme of the history of the language which has been propounded 
the third form of it or that which still subsists may be regarded as having taken its commencement perhaps a full century before the date at which we are now arrived and so is taking in the works not only of langland but of his predecessors from robert of gloucester inclusive our living english literature may be most fitly held to begin with the poetry of chaucer it will thus count an existence already of above five centuries chaucer is supposed to have been born about the beginning of the reign of edward the third in the year thirteen twenty eight if we may trust what is said to have been the ancient inscription on his tombstone so that he had no doubt begun to write and was probably well known as a poet at least as early as langland they may indeed have been contemporaries in the strictest sense of the word for anything that is ascertained if langland wrote the creed of piers plowman as well as the vision which although it has not we believe been suggested is neither impossible nor very unlikely he must have lived to as late or very nearly as late a date as chaucer who is held to have died in fourteen hundred at the same time as langland's greatest if not only work appears to have been produced not long after the middle of the reign of edward the third and the composition of chaucer's canterbury tales not to have been begun till about the middle of that of richard the second the probability certainly is regard being had to the species and character of these poems each seemingly impressed with a long experience of life that langland if not the earlier writer was the elder man the writings of chaucer are very voluminous comprising in so far as they have come down to us in verse the canterbury tales the roman of the rose in seven thousand seven hundred and one lines a translation from the french roman de la rose of guillaume de lory and jean de Mans, troilus and Criseida in five books on the same subject as the philostrato of boccaccio the house of fame in three books chaucer's dream in two thousand two hundred and thirty five lines the book of the duchess sometimes called the dream of chaucer one thousand three hundred and thirty four lines the assembly of fowls six hundred and ninety four lines the flower and the leaf five hundred and ninety five lines the court of love one thousand four hundred and forty two lines together with many ballads and other minor pieces and in prose besides portions of the canterbury tales a translation of boethius's de consolatione philosophiae the testament of love an imitation of the same treatise and a treatise on the astrolabe addressed to his son lewis in thirteen ninety one of which however we have only two out of five parts of which it was intended to consist all these works have been printed most of them more than once and a good many other pieces have also been attributed to chaucer which are either known to be the compositions of other poets or of which at least there is no evidence or probability that he is the author only the canterbury tales however have as yet enjoyed the advantage of anything like careful editing Turwitt's elaborate edition was first published in four volumes octavo in seventeen seventy five his glossary to all the genuine works of chaucer having followed in seventeen seventy eight and another edition presenting a new text and also accompanied with notes and a glossary was brought out by mr t wright for the percy society in eighteen forty seven in his introductory essay on the language and versification of chaucer turwitt observes that at the time when this great writer made his first essays the use of rhyme was established in english poetry not exclusively as we have seen by the example of the vision of piers plowman but very generally so that in this respect he had little to do but to imitate his predecessors 
but the metrical part of our poetry the learned editor conceives was capable of more improvement by the polishing of the measures already in use as well as by the introduction of new modes of versification with respect he continues to the regular measures then in use they may be reduced i think to four first the long iambic metre consisting of not more than fifteen nor less than fourteen syllables and broken by a caesura at the eighth syllable secondly the alexandrine metre consisting of not more than thirteen syllables nor less than twelve with a caesura at the sixth thirdly the octosyllable metre which was in reality the ancient demeter iambic fourthly the stanza of six verses of which the first second fourth and fifth were in the complete octosyllable metre and the third and last catalectic that is wanting a syllable or even two the first of these metres terwitt considers to be exemplified in the ormulum and probably also in the chronicle of robert of gloucester if the genuine text could be recovered the second apparently by robert de brune in imitation of his french original although his verse in hearn's edition is frequently defective the third and fourth were very common being then generally used in lighter compositions as they still are in the first of these metres he proceeds it does not appear that chaucer ever composed at all for i presume no one can imagine that he was the author of gamelin or in the second and in the fourth we have nothing of his but the rhyme of sir topus which being intended to ridicule the vulgar romancer seems to have been purposely written in their favourite metre in the third or octosyllable metre he has left several compositions particularly an imperfect translation of the roman de la rose which was probably one of his earliest performances the house of fame the death of the duchess blanche and a poem called his dream upon all which it would be sufficient here to observe in general that if he had given no other proofs of his poetical faculty these alone must have secured to him the preeminence above all his predecessors and contemporaries in point of versification but by far the most considerable part of chaucer's works is written in that kind of metre which we now call the heroic either in distiches or stanzas and as i have not been able to discover any instance of this metre being used by any english poet before him i am much inclined to suppose that he was the first introducer of it into our language it had been long practised by the writers both in the northern and southern french and within the half-century before chaucer wrote it had been successfully cultivated in preference to every other metre by the great poets of italy dante petrarch and boccaccio Turwitt argues therefore that chaucer may have borrowed his new english verse either from the french or from the italian that the particular species of verse in which chaucer has written his canterbury tales and some of his other poems had not been used by any other english poet before him has not we believe been disputed and does not appear to be disputable at least from such remains of our early poetical literature as we now possess here then is one important fact it is certain also that the french if not likewise the italian poets who employed the decasyllabic or more properly hendecasyllabic metre were well known to chaucer the presumption therefore that his new metre is as turwitt asserts the same italian or french metre of ten or eleven syllables our present heroic verse becomes very strong moreover if chaucer's verse be not constructed upon the principle of syllabical as well as accentual regularity when was this principle which is now the law and universal practice of our poetry introduced it will not be denied to have been completely established ever since the language acquired in all material respects its present form and pronunciation that is to say at least since the middle of the sixteenth century if it was not by chaucer at the end of the fourteenth by whom among 
his followers in the course of the next hundred and fifty years was at first exemplified at present it is sufficient to say that no one of his successors throughout this space has hinted that any improvement any change had been made in the construction of english verse since chaucer wrote on the contrary he is generally recognized by them as the great reformer of our language and our poetry and as their master and instructor in their common art by his friend and disciple Ockleed, he is called the first finder of our fair language so lydgate in the next generation celebrates him as his master as chief poet of britain as he that was of making sovereign whom all this land of right ought prefer sith of our language he was the loadster and as the noble rector poet of Britain, that worthy was the lore to have of poetria and the palm attain that made first to distil and rain the gold-dewed drops of speech and eloquence into our tongue through his excellence and found the flowers first of rhetoric a rude speech only to illumine etc a later writer gawain douglas sounds his praise as venerable chaucer principal poet but peer heavenly trumpet or lege and regulier eloquence balm condict and dial milky fountain clear strand and rose real in a strain it must be confessed more remarkable for enthusiastic vehemence than for poetical inspiration the learned and at the same time elegant leland in the next age describes him as the writer to whom the his country's tongue owes all its beauties anglia chaucerum veneratur nostra poetam cui veneris debit patria lingua suis and again in another tribute as having first reduced the language into regular form linguam qui patriam redegit elam in formam and such seems to have been the unbroken tradition down to spenser who looking back through two centuries hails his great predecessor still the well of english undefiled if now we proceed to examine chaucer's verse do we find it actually characterized by this regularity which indisputably has at least from within a century and a half of his time been the law of our poetry not if we assume that the english of chaucer's time was read in all respects precisely like that of our own day but are we warranted in assuming this we know that some changes have taken place in the national pronunciation within a much shorter space the accentuation of many words is different even in shakespeare and his contemporaries from what it now is even since the language has been what we may call settled and the process of growth in it nearly stopped there has still been observable a disposition in the accent or syllabic emphasis to project itself with more precipitation than formerly to seize upon a more early enunciated part in the syllables and other polysyllabic words than that to which it was wont to be attached for example we now always pronounce the word aspect with the accent on the first syllable in the time of shakespeare it was always accented on the last we now call a certain short composition an essay but only a century ago it was called an essay and write next winter says pope more essays on man probably at an earlier period when this change was going on more actively it was part of that general process by which the teutonic or native element in our language eventually after a long struggle acquired the ascendancy over the french element 
and if so for a time the accentuation of many words would be unfixed or would oscillate between the two systems the french habit of reserving itself for the final syllable and the native tendency to cling to a prior portion of the word this appears to have been the case in chaucer's day many words are manifestly in his poetry accented differently from what they are now as is proved upon either theory of his prosody when they occur at the end of a verse and in many also he seems to vary the accent pronouncing for instance language in one line language in another as suits his convenience but again under the tendency to elision and abbreviation which is common to all languages in a state of growth there can be no doubt that in the progress of the english tongue from its first subjection to literary cultivation in the middle of the thirteenth century to its final settlement in the middle of the seventeenth it dropped and lost altogether many short or unaccented syllables some of these indeed our poets still assert their right to revive in pressing circumstances thus though we now almost universally elide or suppress the e before the terminating d of the preterites and past participles of our verbs it is still sometimes called into life again to make a distinct syllable in verse two centuries ago when perhaps it was generally heard in the common speech of the people as it still is in some of our provincial dialects and when its suppression in reading prose would probably have been accounted an irregularity it was as often sounded in verse as not and the license was probably considered to be taken when it was elided the elision when it took place was generally marked by the omission of the vowel in the spelling if we go back another century we find the pronunciation of the termination as a distinct syllable to be clearly the rule and the prevailing practice and the suppression of the vowel to be the rare exception but even at so late a date as the end of the sixteenth and the beginning of the seventeenth century other short vowels as well as this were still occasionally pronounced as they were almost always written both the genitive or possessive singular and the nominative plural of nouns were down to this time made by the addition not of s only as now but of es to the nominative singular and the es makes a distinct syllable sometimes in shakespeare and often in spencer in chaucer therefore it is only what we should expect that it should generally be so pronounced it is evident that originally or when it first appeared in the language it always was and that the practice of running it and the preceding syllable together as we now do has only been gradually introduced and established up to this point to wit's theory of chaucer's versification may be said to be admitted on all hands it is allowed that in reading chaucer's verses we should generally sound as distinct syllables the ed at the end of verbs and the es when it is the plural or possessive termination of a noun and also that we must give many words a different accentuation from what they now possess but this is not enough to make the verse in all cases syllabically regular the deficiencies of chaucer's metres to wit contends are to be chiefly supplied by the pronunciation of what he calls the e feminine by which he means the e which still terminates so many of our words but is now either totally silent and ineffective in that pronunciation or only lengthens or otherwise alters the sound of the preceding syllable in either case is entirely inoperative upon the syllabication thus such words as large strange time etc he conceives to be often dissyllables and such words as romaine sentence often trisyllables in chaucer some words also he holds to be lengthened a syllable by the intervention of such an e now omitted both in speaking and writing in the middle as in judgment commandment vouchsafe etc wallace the distinguished mathematician in his grammar of the english language written in latin and published about the middle of the seventeenth century had suggested that the origin of this 
silent e probably was that it had originally been pronounced though somewhat obscurely as a distinct syllable like the french e feminine which still counts for such in the prosody of that language wallace adds that the surest proof of this is to be found in our old poets with whom the said e sometimes makes a syllable sometimes not as the verse requires with respect to words imported directly from france observes terwitt it is certainly quite natural to suppose that for some time they retained their native pronunciation we have not indeed he continues so clear a proof of the original pronunciation of the saxon part of our language but we know from general observation that all changes of pronunciation are generally made by small degrees and therefore when we find that a great number of those words which in chaucer's time ended in e originally ended in a we may reasonably presume that our ancestors first passed from the broader sound of a to the thinner sound of e feminine and not at once from a to e mute besides if the final e in such words was not pronounced why was it added from the time that it has confessedly ceased to be pronounced it has been gradually omitted in them except where it may be supposed of use to lengthen or soften the preceding syllable as in hope name etc but according to the ancient orthography it terminates many words of saxon original where it cannot have been added for any such purpose as heart child old wild etc in these therefore we must suppose that it was pronounced as e feminine and made part of a second syllable and so by a parity of reason in all others in which as in these it appears to have been substituted for the saxon a from all this Tyrwhitt concludes that the pronunciation of the e feminine is founded on the very nature of both the french and saxon parts of our language and therefore that what is generally considered as an e mute either at the end or in the middle of words was anciently pronounced but obscurely like the e feminine of the french in a note referring to an opinion expressed by wallace observing that the french very often suppress this shorty in their common speech was led to think that the pronunciation of it would perhaps shortly be in all cases disused among them as among ourselves he adds the prediction has certainly failed but notwithstanding i will venture to say that when it was made it was not unworthy of wallace's sagacity unluckily for its success a number of eminent writers happened at that very time to be growing up in france whose works having since been received as standards of style must probably fix for many centuries the ancient usage of the e feminine in poetry and of course give a considerable check to the natural progress of the language if the age of edward the third had been as favourable to letters as that of louis the fourteenth if chaucer and his contemporary poets had acquired the same authority here that cognier moliere racine and boileau have obtained in france if their works had been published by themselves and perpetuated in a genuine state by printing i think it probable that the e feminine would still have preserved its place in our poetical language at least and certainly without any prejudice to the smoothness of our versification in supporting his views by these reasons Turwitt avoids having recourse to any arguments that might be drawn from the practice of chaucer himself that being in fact the matter in dispute but his main proposition to the extent at least of the alleged capacity of the now silent final e to make the, a distinct syllable in chaucer's day appears to be demonstrated by some instances in the poet's works thus for example in the following couplet from the prologue of the canterbury tales unless the word rome which ends in the, the first line be pronounced as a dissyllable there would be no rhyme that straight was comin from the court of romey full loud he sang come hither love to me so again in the canon yeoman's tale we have the following lines and when this alka mr saurus timey riseth up sir priest quod he and standeth by me 
in the first of which time must evidently in like manner be read as a word of two syllables the same rhyme occurs in a quatrain in the second book of the troilus and cressida all easily now for the love of marti quod pandarus for everything hath timey so long abide till that the night departy for all so sicker as thou liest here by me finding rome and time to be clearly dissyllables in these passages it would seem that we ought as turbot remarks note on prologue to canterbury tales six seventy four to have no scruple so to pronounce them and other similar words wherever the metre requires it such is the outline of turbot's theory which it must be admitted is at least extremely plausible and which was long universally assented to of late however it has been attacked from several quarters and on various grounds the question is one which is of fundamental and central importance in the history of our language and literature and which therefore may not unprofitably detain us for a few pages more the first person we believe who intimated a distinct dissent from turbot's conclusions was the late dr nott in an elaborate dissertation on the state of english poetry before the sixteenth century prefixed to his edition of the works of the earl of surrey quarto london eighteen fifteen dr nott's object is to prove that the present system of versification the principle of which is syllabical as well as accentual regularity was the invention of surrey in the middle of the sixteenth century and that down to that date our verses of every kind were all what he is pleased to call rhythmical and not metrical that is as he explains the expression they did not consist as our verses do at present of a certain number of feet each foot of two syllables but they were constructed so as to be recited with a certain rhythmical cadence for which reason they seem to have been called verses of cadence dissertation page one hundred and fifty one this nomenclature at least is unfortunate the phrase verse of cadence is legates but whatever may be its import it certainly was not the only kind of verse known in chaucer's time for in his house of fame two one fifteen chaucer himself is described in an address to him by the eagle as having long been given to apply his wit to make books songs and ditties in rhyme or ellis in cadence it is remarkable that this passage so clearly implying as it would seem that besides verse of cadence chaucer was acquainted with a different sort of verse which he distinguishes by the name of rhyme should have escaped the attention of dr nott or should not be anywhere noticed by him further it appears from a passage in the troilus and cressida verse one thousand seven hundred and ninety six which the learned editor does quote dissertation one hundred and sixty three that chaucer himself considered his verse in that work to be metrical it is where after having thus gracefully dismissed his finished work go little book go little tragedy there god my maker yet ere that i dee so send me might to make some comedy but little book make thou thee none and thee but subject been unto all poesy and kiss the steps whereas thou seest pacy a virgil ovid homer lucan stacy he proceeds in the next stanza to express his earnest hope that transcribers and reciters may be withheld from violating his metre and for there is so great diversity in english and in writing of our tongue so pray i to god that none miswrite of thee ne midi mis mitra for default of tongue these passages may not be absolutely irreconcilable with the position of charles's verse was not constructed upon the principle of syllabical regularity but they show that dr nott has not been happy in the selection of his epithets when he affirms that the only kinds of verse known in chaucer's time were all of verses of cadence 
and all not metrical to speak as he does of the feet of our present verses as all consisting each of two syllables is another obvious error of expression dr knott maintains that chaucer's supposed employment of the final and now silent e as a distinct syllable could not have been derived from the similar use of the e feminine in french poetry but he satisfies himself with a mere expression of his conviction on this point it remains he says yet to be proved that the use of the e feminine such as is here contended for was then established in french poetry it seems clear to me that it was not nor do i doubt but that every one will arrive at the same conclusion who will give himself the trouble to examine dispassionately the early french poets and particularly the manuscript copies of their works it is probable that french verse was anciently written with less regularity than it afterwards acquired and in the earlier poets of that language therefore the prosodical use of what is called the e feminine may both seem and be somewhat capricious but it is a startling assumption that such use is altogether a modern invention upon this supposition it behooved dr not to point out when and by whom so extraordinary an innovation was introduced it is strange he should not have perceived that his notion attributes to some comparatively recent french poet the very same thing which he properly objects to is unlikely to have happened in the case of chaucer that in his own words if chaucer really did employ the e feminine in his versification in the manner supposed it must have been a contrivance purely of his own invention a supposition this he adds which i apprehend few will be disposed to maintain dissertation page one hundred and forty three but the supposition in question is one which nobody has ever advanced with regard to chaucer it appears to me incredible says dr knott a few sentences before that chaucer who was remarkable for his common sense and practical view of things meaning to form a standard style in language should begin by introducing a novel mode of pronunciation which being contrary to common usage could not be generally adopted this is an absurdity of the learned editor's own making Turwitt does not imagine that chaucer introduced any novel mode of pronunciation he conceives that the pronunciation of the language found according to his view in chaucer's poetry was the common pronunciation of the time if the poetry of chaucer is to be so read so undoubtedly is that also of langland and minot and de brun and robert of gloucester and all our other early english poetry what chaucer introduced and borrowed from the poetry of france or italy if he introduced or thence borrowed anything was not the occasional pronunciation of the final e as a distinct syllable but the general principle of metrical regularity to which he adapted this and all the other points of the ancient and established national mode of speech what particular advantage could he have gained by merely multiplying in this or in any other way the number of syllables in the language it is an odd notion for dr knott to take up that chaucer's only object in his supposed reformation of our verse was to contrive some ready way of, of always spinning out his line into ten or eleven syllables a method of reducing it within those dimensions would have been found equally convenient if he had ever thought of resorting to any such unheard-of and absurd devices but it is not necessary for the refutation of the claim set up by dr knott in favour of the earl of surrey that we should suppose chaucer to have made any change whatever in the principles of english versification if it be only admitted that his verses are constructed upon the principle of syllabical regularity it does not matter for this question whether those of his predecessors are so or not his versification may surpass those only by this common principle being applied by him with more care skill and success than it was by them he may have made no innovation in the structure of our verse whatever and barred nothing from the poets of france or italy except only their superior correctness and elegance End of section twenty five